Titans are in a world of trouble. And believe it or not, I'm not just saying that because of the three players and five additional staff members who tested positive for coronavirus yesterday. No, this 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 goes beyond that. Good morning to you. Good Wednesday morning. I'm Dan Kovacevic of DK Pittsburgh Sports and the newly reborn DK Sports Radio Podcasting Network, which we hope you're setting to auto-download wherever it is that you're listening to us. And we're available on all platforms in case you're just listening to us for the first time. Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, Anchor, we're everywhere. The Titans are 3-0. and The Steelers are 3-0. and Sounds like a wonderful matchup if it comes to pass, and I, and I believe that it will. I believe there's all kinds of grounds for the NFL and everybody involved to stick to their guns and to kick the ball up into the air Sunday at 1.02 p.m. Eastern Time in Nashville. I really do. I really, really believe that's going to happen. Not Pollyanna-ish or whatever. There's just plenty of precedent, primarily in Major League Baseball, for that to be the case. If the NFL lets this one slip away with this much advance notice and with this low a number of players affected, then they're opening up a big can of worms for the remainder of the season. I really believe that. Same thing goes even if they decide to push it a day back because that's not fair to the Steelers. Now the Steelers have a short week of prep for the Eagles the following week. I don't like any of that. Steelers didn't do anything wrong. Steelers have uh, kept their noses clean, if you will, in the coronavirus sense. No reason to punish them. But here's the bigger problem for the Titans, if I can turn this into a football thing. The Titans, as mentioned, are 3-0. and They've beaten Jacksonville, Minnesota, and Denver, the only common opponent they have with the Steelers to date, by a combined six points. Those aren't great teams. I'm not suggesting that the Steelers' schedule has been a whole lot more challenging, but at least the Steelers face a a decent, if now 0-3, Houston team this past weekend. Tennessee has barely gotten past these opponents. And when you dig into their deeper numbers, you can kind of see why, because they're doing some decent stuff offensively. Ryan Tannehill's got a uh, 106 passer rating that's 10th best in the NFL. He's been pretty efficient with the wide receivers that he has. Derrick Henry is Derrick Henry, um, just an absolute man beast. Their offense is going to move the ball. They haven't been great offensively, but they've been good enough. The reason that they've not really asserted themselves while going 3-0 and is an ugly weakness for a football team to have. And those of you who are football lifers will know right away that I'm referring to a run defense because that's the number one thing that can make any coach at any level of the sport cringe. They rank, the Titans do, 
32nd in the NFL, which is notable because the NFL's got 32 teams. They've been giving up an average of 166 yards on the ground per game. Per game. That's the worst in the league. They've been conceding 6.9 yards per play on the ground. Now, understand that you know early in the season, stats can get skewed by big plays, but this is a lot of runs leading into this average. I mean, that's like your running back just falling forward on his face and getting seven yards every time you hand the ball off. On top of that, to combine with the coronavirus thing, Daquan Jones, the defensive lineman, was one of the three, meaning one of the three who tested positive, and thus absolutely positively, no, no way, no chance at all, he'll play Sunday. He's got to quarantine for 14 days and then go through all kinds of Q-tips up his nostrils and all that other stuff to get cleared to return. No way whatsoever he'll play in that game. And while he is not a great player, he's part of their starting defensive line. And chances are excellent that whoever replaces him will not be as good as he is. So if it's possible for the Titans to rank 33rd in a 32-team league in run defense, that's where they enter this coming week. Just as in the Steelers' first three weeks of competition, I have not been able to get past the single facet of Steelers' pass rush versus the opponent's quarterback. I felt confidently, and it turns out accurately, that that was going to be the thing that decided all three games. It was going to be the factor that no matter what else happened, this was going to override the rest. And it and it has. Even this past week against Houston, where the defense didn't get off to a great start, once you got to the second half, the defense was just absurd. Absurd. It wasn't just that they got three sacks, they got the Mike Hilton pick. It's that they were just all over everybody. 51 total yards for the Texans in the second half. Two first downs. I mean, you won't see that again in a long, long time. I don't care who they're playing. Never mind a good team like Houston. But now I'm going to I'm gonna flip here. I'm going to flip because I, I do think that Derrick Henry is going to cause the Steelers' defense problems, battering them up the middle in particular. That's not to say they can't stop him. It's not to say they won't stop him. They've stopped everybody. Uh, they held Saquon Barkley to six yards, which is less than the Titans allow per carry. <laughs> they held poor Saquon to six yards for the whole game. <laughs> and Ryan Tannehill's going to make his completions, and the Titans are going to put up some points, and we're going to grouse a little bit more about the defense. To me... What really leaps out is that the Titans will not be able to stop James Conner or, when he is spelled, Anthony McFarland, who, by the way, got yet another endorsement from Mike Tomlin yesterday that I'm going to play for you right now. He has uh, merited more playing time. He's had some really good practices. 
um, it's a difficult environment for young guys to establish themselves and, and get the type of, you know, get the type of, of feel that you, you're willing to play them and play them a lot uh, without preseason games and so forth. The process might be, you know, a little bit more cumbersome for him. And, and he's continually worked hard and, and earned the opportunity that he got. And I'm sure uh, we're going to continue down that road with he and others. Yeah, sounds like McFarland's going to keep getting the ball, right? So you have Connor, you have McFarland, you've got Benny Snell. You've got three different guys that you can hand the ball to and know that you're going to get runs. You're also going to keep players fresher. You're going to keep Connor fresher. Ideally, keep Connor on the field. I know that's what you're thinking, so I just said it out loud. That's all good. That's all good. And if they run for 166 yards, meaning the average that Tennessee has conceded through these first three games of theirs, the Steelers will win this football game. That's it. It'll override everything else because what that'll tell you is that the Steelers were able to possess the ball, that they were able to have methodical rhythmic drives, and, and this is important, if Vrabel and the Titans adjust by having more people at the line of scrimmage and they start stacking the box, oh, I mean... Now you're letting Ben have his choice, even if Deontay Johnson isn't available. And by the way, he has been diagnosed formally with a concussion and will be in the protocol. We won't know anything about his status until Friday. But even if Deontay isn't available, you've still got Juju. You've still got James Washington. You've still got two tight ends who can catch the ball. You've still got Chase Claypool. Maybe even more of Chase Claypool. You've got different ways to beat the Titans through the air if they start stacking the box. I see this week as a game that, A, to keep repeating this, will absolutely be played, and B, that'll be the first one where the Steelers' offense is tasked with winning it. Yeah, I know they were the ones that put up the 28 against Houston and had to overcome the three touchdowns that the Texans scored early against the Steelers' defense, but I I still feel like that was kind of a 50-50. I think the Steelers' offense will be tasked with winning this game, and I think they will be more than up to it. Because if you don't have an answer for stopping the run, whether it's the Upper St. Clair JV or the National Football League, you will lose. You will lose way more often than not. And the Titans coming in at 3-0 doesn't matter anywhere as much as the fact that they've got this one glaring, gaping Achilles heel that the Steelers are very much poised to take advantage of. It's the only team in the NFL that's had a 100-yard rusher in each of the first three weeks against teams that are way better at defending the run Tennessee, all of them. (laughs) When we come back, a little bit of baseball. Hi, welcome back. I'm going to do some baseball. I don't watch baseball when the Pirates are done. This goes back to childhood. I've never really been able to explain it 
with any phrase other than this goes back to childhood. I just don't have it in me to watch teams that aren't the Pirates. It's not a it's not a rooting interest thing. It's not a homer thing. I'm just not I, I don't care. I, I don't get invested in what other teams in baseball do. I don't get invested in who wins in the playoffs. I don't care who wins the World Series. If you had to strap me into a chair and try to figure out why that is, not that it would be that interesting to anybody, it would basically come down to I don't care which team with the mega payroll wins in a ridiculously imbalanced economic system. (laughs) How about that for a mouthy phrase to explain a childish reaction? This segment of Daily Shot is always brought to you by the personal injury law firm of Luxembourg, Garbett, Kelly, and George. They represent people who are hurt in car accidents, who need help with workers' comp, medical malpractice claims. The attorneys at LGKG pride themselves in doing what they say they're going to do. I've met Larry Kelly, gotten to know him. Good guy. Good man. When he speaks about his company, that's what he brings up. The law firm has been keeping promises for 80 years. Obviously, Larry hasn't been there for all 80. LGKG has offices in Cranberry, Newcastle, Beaver Falls, Butler, and Elwood City. And you can learn more about them at lgkg.com, just like it sounds, lgkg.com, or by calling them at 888-842-5454. Give you the number again. It's 888-842-5454. Leading into the playoffs, hero among men, Rob Manfred, was interviewed and asked some general thoughts about the state of baseball after the unusual but richly successful 2020 coronavirus shortened season that was just completed. A lot of different things went into that. One of the things that did go into that, that goes beyond the usual platitudes for medical people, cleaners, and of course the participants themselves, is that Major League Baseball came up with some rule changes that they hoped would even if just in a small way, each one of them would somehow contribute to keeping the season safe sounds dramatic, but that's part of it because when the games are shorter, when there's fewer innings, you have fewer participants involved, you have less things that can go wrong, less things that can go wrong means less contact, etc., etc. And some of those plans that went in, proposals that became rules, are now kind of sitting in limbo. Seven-inning doubleheaders, you know, games one and games two were each seven innings. Um, That's something that's done in the minor leagues to protect arms. But there were a lot of people, baseball people, and you can label them however you want. Uh, What's the term that they use? for that uh, altruists or uh, purists. That's it, purists. I'm a purist, whatever that means. But they got all bent out of shape because baseball is a game of threes. Everything's in threes, you know? Three outs, uh, you know, three times three is nine, whatever. Everything was in threes, and now all of a sudden you had something in sevens. You also had the runner starting on second base, in extra innings, which I thought was by far the biggest departure. I mean, I know they were doing this in 
the minor leagues on an experimental basis for a while, and then they and then they really put it in again. Same concept. They didn't want games going 17, 18 innings and and using up arms. I th- to me that was the one that was the most like whoa. I mean, you're really breaking from history. There's a runner standing at second base to open an inning, and the runner did nothing to deserve that base. That's all kinds of purest violation there, or truest, or whatever it is. And and other elements were brought in, not least of which was the the universal DH. So anyway, you don't care what I think about that. What What Manfred said about it was that First of all, regarding the DH, that he sounded really 50-50 about it, wishy-washy. He sounds like he wants somebody else to figure it out, essentially. Like, maybe he needs to, um, I was going to say check his owner's temperature, but that sounds like a, a coronavirus test on the way into the building, so I'll find something else. He wanted to see how they feel about it. Maybe it's a money thing, you know? If you have a DH, you're you're paying more to that player than you are to the fifth or sixth scrub on your bench. You know what I mean? You just let the pitcher bat. It doesn't have to be a star player. You're not paying an, a, some, uh, you know, Jim Tomey type to be your DH. And he, anyway, he sounded wishy-washy about that one. As it related to the seven-inning double headers, he took one big dump all over that. He he sounded like he couldn't wait to get rid of it. He he predicted that if there was one that you would put at the bottom of the list that would be the least likely to return, it would be that. And to me, that one doesn't even matter because how many doubleheaders did baseball had? They had no scheduled doubleheaders in recent memory up until this year. So you're talking about makeups, and if you're talking about makeups. There aren't that many of them. Just go ahead and play the nine. Plus, if you're getting into day-night doubleheaders, which a lot of teams like to do because then they can take everybody out of the stadium and kick them out and bring them all back in on a second ticket price and double their revenue, you're not ripping them off by playing seven-inning ball. So that that one's kind of a no-brainer. What I didn't see coming was Manfred giving a pretty strong endorsement of the runner at second base. And his reasoning for that, his stated reasoning, wasn't too detailed. He basically just said, we we like the impact on shortening the games. And if you know anything about Manfred's history, he has been all about cutting down the average time of game. What bothers me about this approach, or at least... This thinking behind this approach is that it feels like what Manfred wants to do is to chop down a number to be able to show it to people, including TV executives, and say, look, we're doing this. We've shortened the games, when in fact, that's never the metric anybody should be looking at. You should always be looking at the length of a nine-inning game or, you know, if the home team wins an eight-and-a-half-inning game. That's always the only metric for this. The Whenever you see somebody say, the average length of game was this, uh-uh, uh-uh. It's always about nine innings. Those figures, I'm sure he can use to his 
benefit whenever people say, oh, you know, your game is out of touch and it's, you know, you have the World Series running past midnight every night and you're killing the younger generation and everything else. Well, he can say, well, no, look, we just shaved off an average of six or seven minutes per game. And he won't tell you if it's a nine inning game. The part that I do like about this is that I am in favor of sparing the pitching. Um, I've covered games on a Saturday night that went 16, 17, 18 innings. And the Pirates would have a game on Sunday afternoon at 135. And you can just picture the team's general manager like in the 12th or 13th inning in a panic calling not Indianapolis because they couldn't possibly get a pitcher to Pittsburgh in time, but Altoona so they could just make the ride across Route 22 and get here within an hour and a half and be available for the next afternoon. Uh, That's not a great way to conduct Major League Baseball. I was never in favor, as much fun as they are at the conclusion and as dramatic as they are, all the jumping up and down and everything else that happens. And you remember some of the better moments in the Pirates' recent history have been those super long games at PNC Park. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. An extra inning game that runs that long basically just means that you watched five or six extra innings of goose eggs and relief pitchers changing hands. So you're not even appreciating some great pitching duel. You know what I mean? It's not like watching two starters go at it head-to-head. You're just watching a bunch of nobodies from both teams come in and out of the game. And then it's great at the end, and yay, we did it. We we hung around, and 1,500 other people hung around, and and all 20,000 who were there at the start get to claim that they were there. It's not worth it. It's not worth it to the pitching arms primarily. That, that's what jumps out for me. I'm tired of pitching ailments. I'm tired of writing about them as much as you are of reading about them and hearing about them. Uh, anything that can be done to cut down the number of innings that pitchers log, but especially pointless innings, you know, that just where it just goes on and on and on. The second base thing, I'll tell you what, yeah, it, it worked for everybody except Pittsburgh. You know, the Pirates were 1-6 in, in extra inning games. That's primarily because the Pirates weren't very good. That wasn't bad luck. But the games generally didn't go very long. And when they did get extended, more often than not, it seemed, it was because both teams would score and force an extra inning. And that's fun. That's more along the lines of a basketball overtime, you know, where the only way you get to a second OT in basketball is if both teams are kind of hitting their shots. You know what I mean? So I'm all right with this. I I think this is going to, this one's going to work out okay. But I still don't like Rob Manford, and I just had to throw that in at the end. Baseball needs a real commission. When we come back, some hockey. public relations staff sent out the official draft order list and for anyone who doesn't know and you're thinking oh the draft that's a long way off it's not it's like next week it's october 6th and 7th it was supposed to be in montreal it instead will be held 
on your laptop and mine, all virtual, just the way the NFL and Major League Baseball did theirs. This segment of Daily Shot is brought to you by our friends at the Greater Pittsburgh Community Food Bank and their new Grow, Share, Thrive Drive. Try that one again. Grow, Share, Thrive Drive, which coincidentally you can find out about it, growsharethrive.org. Now that I've said it three times, there's no way you're going to get that wrong when you type it into your keyboard. In normal times, one in seven people in our region are what's known as food insecure, meaning they're looking for food. They're not sure where the next meal is coming from. That includes one in five children. That is scary stuff for way too many families in our region. If you'd like to help, if you'd like to be part of this drive, visit growsharethrive.org. And bear in mind, $1 can provide enough food for up to five meals. And during this drive, all donations will be augmented. So the NHL's email comes, and it, it's every year. You get these in, in all sports, that lists literally every pick by team through all seven rounds. And I got to tell you, my thumb developed carpal tunnel going all the way down to Pittsburgh's first pick, which was in the third round, 77th overall. The Penguins will pick in the following rounds, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth. They have four total picks. That's it. They don't even have a pick in the seventh round. They're not going to get a player who can help them. Certainly not any time in the near future. And that's unfortunate on a couple of fronts. One is that, you know, at the time that you trade for a Patrick Marlowe, it gets buried in the discussion that you gave up a second-round pick. It just does. That's that's human nature. Um, I'm guilty of it as much as anybody. When the trade happens, it's not like I put in the headline, Penguins give up second-rounder to get Marlowe. No, it's Penguins get Marlowe, you know? <laughs> Penguins get Marlowe for pick. Penguins Penguins get Marlowe for something, something, something. Nobody even cares. You don't hear anything past it. He's a name. And he, he you know, he played okay. He's gonna end up getting trashed and bashed, I think, for a long time. Kind of the way we did with uh Iginla, Jerome Iginla and or Dan Bilesma for playing Iggy on the wrong wing. When he came, it was such a big, big deal and, and nobody cared what was given up. You hear these names and you get all excited. But the prospect that you give up by giving up the draft pick can also be a real thing and a real player. And if you ever want to do something excruciating, a really tough exercise for a Penguins fan is to go back through all the picks that they've given up, you know, the ones that have in parentheses after them, from PIT, via PIT. And find out who those guys were and ask yourself where the Penguins would be right now in 2020 
if they'd kept those guys. Look, I, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. I, I can hear, well, yeah, but they did this and they won the two cups and they did that in part because Jim Rutherford took this approach. I get that. I appreciate it. I respect it. The championship is something you will always pay the price for. Always, always, always. I've said it for a million years. There is no such thing as a losing trade that produces a championship. The moment that Craig Patrick acquired Rick Tockett, Shell Samuelson, and Ken Reggett from the Flyers for Mark Reckie, it didn't matter. As Craig Patrick has said many times since then, I knew I was giving up a Hall of Famer. He did. He did. Reckie went on to the Hall of Fame. None of the guys who came to Pittsburgh are going to be in the Hall of Fame. Pittsburgh won the trade. Why? Pittsburgh won the championship partly as a result of that trade in 1992. So those are good trades. Those are smart trades. Those are trades made for exactly the right reason. However, if you do it habitually, if you do it like dishing out candy, the way Jim Rutherford has done, and we've had this conversation directly, he and I, you're going to hurt yourself in the long run. He knows that. He says it right back. He knows that. But then his comeback to me when we bring this up is he'll look figuratively onto the ice and say, look at those guys out there. You tell me what I'm supposed to do. And to that end, he's right. But it doesn't have to be all of your picks. It doesn't have to be your first rounder, your second rounder. The one thing that absolutely has to come to it grinding halt with this organization once and for all is giving up that second rounder or the third rounder for the aging rental veteran. That That's the one that has to stop. I don't care how unpopular it'll be at trade deadline time when the Penguins don't make a move. I don't care how far against Rutherford's grain that goes. Somebody has to put a stop to that. The one that's going to hurt more than any, is the second rounder for Marlowe just because of that principle, because he came here and they couldn't even really find a spot for him. And that just can't keep happening. You're going to end up the way the Red Wings have, where you're just looking at, whoa, what do we do now? Where'd everybody go? Well, Henrik Zetterberg, Pavel Datsuk, and Nicholas Lidstrom went back overseas, and this is what we've got. We've got Dylan Larkin, and uh, <laughs> I mean, that's that's where they are in Detroit, and that's where you're going to be in Pittsburgh. You can't do that. You have to at least keep your second-rounders, your third-rounders, uh, and, and those higher picks certainly in favor of the 40-year-old rental. The other thing that you can do if you're Jim Rutherford, and not to put pressure on the situation here, but he's got to trade Matt Murray. He knows that. He knows what he wants for him. I believe it's a first-round pick. There's a lot you can salvage from a draft class by making sure that you have a first-rounder. Now, you're not going to get a high first-rounder. You're not going to have any of those teams jumping in, I wouldn't think. Besides, Murray really wouldn't be a fit for those teams because those are going to be mostly uh, or entirely teams that were losers last year. 
Murray's a better fit for somebody that's already closer to contention or fancies themselves as such. Uh, I keep citing the Alberta teams, but I, I could see either Edmonton or Calgary making some kind of move for him, in which case you would be in, in a decent, not in a terrible spot, but a decent spot in the first round. Get yourself an actual first-round pick. I'm doubtful he can pull that off. If he does, it's great. If not, and he gets a second rounder, at least that's something. I believe in this moment, I believe that Jim Rutherford could get a second rounder for Matt Murray if he wanted with a snap of a finger. I think that's on the table now. But I also think he's smart to hang on to see if he can get somebody to part with a first. See how this goes. Get closer to the draft. Uh, get closer to some of those teams thinking they might not be able to get this player, or they might hear vibes about some of the pending free agents, notably Braden Holtby, and hear that Holtby wants $9 million a year, even though the salary cap has been frozen. I'm just making that up. But that's what Andre Vasilevsky and Sergei Bobrovsky got, so Holtby should be very much asking for that, at least at the outset. And maybe they get scared off by that, and they say, all right, well, look, we can just deal with Pittsburgh and get this guy who's won two cups and give them a second rounder. Montreal just got Jake Allen. This was three weeks ago. I don't mean to make it sound like it was yesterday. Jake Allen from the Blues for a third-round pick. Jake Allen might be good at a lot of things in life. Goaltending is not one of them. And the fact that Mark Bergevin gave up a third-rounder to bring him to Montreal to be Carey Price's backup makes zero sense. But that goes in line with a lot of Bergie's moves up there. However, the market is the market. Everyone saw that trade. Rutherford immediately can say to everybody, well, I'm second-rounder here. I mean, this is a two-time champion. He's young. He's controllable. You could probably sign him. He's not coming off of his two best seasons. So come and get him, but bring a first rounder. Do that. Let the draft be not just fun for us in the short term, but let the draft be something that legitimately can build the Penguins up year after year and get them stronger and stronger. Look, Sid's not a kid anymore, but he's also not going away in a year or two, you know? Keep the team strong. Keep building it. Keep adding those younger guys around him. It will work. It might not mean another championship, but it's a heck of a lot better way and a smarter way to stay competitive than it is sending away draft picks for 40-year-olds. Thanks so much for listening today. Your front door, your car, your gym locker, your gun. Safety is a habit. Learn more about how to keep guns safe and secure. Visit projectchildsafe.org.